0: How do you generate a vocabulary of forms that will give you an urban outcome, where one one plus one will equal way more than two? From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live.
1: I'm Charles Waldheim. Here today with Albert Pope, architect and urbanist whose research deals with uh, the modern city, the post-war uh, city. Albert joins us today to discuss his interest in the future of American city. Albert, welcome.
0: Thanks for the invitation.
1: Happy to have you with us. Um, first of all, you and your family are staying healthy. You guys doing okay?
0: Yeah. We live in a uh, city that is already socially distanced, which we turn to our advantage. Um, so all is good.
1: So Houston has many advantages. So in addition to Houston, I know you've done quite a lot of work both in and on the city of Houston. I know that you've also uh, spent some time recently thinking about and doing work on the city of Detroit, which is a topic I think you and I have shared an interest in. I recall a couple of years back uh, for the Venice Biennale, you did a project for Corktown that looked at kind of wood urbanism, wood metabolism, and the notion of rebuilding a portion of that city. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, it was a very generous offer to participate in the Biennale. I did it with colleague, Jesus Fasalo, and they gave us a two-block site on the waterfront. It's right on the Detroit River, and we decided to do 250 blocks and phase a new development for Corktown. Corktown had been bracketed off by freeways on three sides and the river on the fourth, which speeded its decline because it was cut off from the rest of the city. And it made sense to rethink what it was. We felt that using the two blocks we were given as a kind of trigger for new development was simply a recipe for more gentrification. We could maybe offer a little bit more in terms of projecting out over time, most of our work is phased in five or 10 year phases. The redevelopment of the Corktown area through I mean, 2060, imagined it, came up with. We've been working on a, an idea about type that is much more flexible than the traditional definition of it, but we did an experiment and how we could develop those 250 blocks. With a good deal of design latitude, but at the same time, assure that the buildings related to each other in a way that would form coherent uh, urban districts. And then we followed through, there was a marvelous uh, project in Detroit. We had started looking at carbon plantations as a form of urban forestry. They were essentially planting trees on derelict blocks in Detroit. They had originally started to do... uh, They were going to do tractor farming. This company bought up a huge amount of empty blocks in Detroit. Initially, we're going to do tractor farming and everyone raised hell and they came back and said, how about we plant trees and we'll promise that they will last. We won't cut them down for the years. We'll plant sugar maples. They'll be brilliant orange in the fall. And I thought it was inspired. So it's almost like a win-win. And it's, uh, I haven't checked in on it recently, but it was taking off at the time.
1: Over the past decade, it's true that this tree plantation urban forestry, this uh, occasional use, especially on the Eastern side of town, has been really quite productive in terms of dozens and dozens of acres being taken up. My understanding, having been there recently, it's economically productive. I know that it's controversial with respect to some of the communities and the optic of going back to something in terms of forestry, not to mention agriculture. So what was it about that notion of urban forestry or the kind of urban regeneration through tree material that uh, allowed you to imagine a typological or an urban form response?
0: It it wasn't directly related, but it was indirectly related to the fact that we were going to experiment with high-rise wood construction. And it wasn't, we were worried that people would think that we're going to cut down trees and make a panel and put it in a building, which wasn't the case at all. I think the, the point is that you could, most of the ways I describe this sound a little hokey we were thinking about how to get the city into the carbon cycle. How do you think of urbanism in terms of the carbon cycle? And obviously, carbon capture and trees, carbon storage and wood. We had taken the, the, we took the, the stretch of the Detroit River and sort of was recommending a kind of rewilding of the riverfront. And that sort of, you know, you have trees that are in the wild, you have trees that are cultivated and you had trees that are incredibly industrialized, right? Manufactured CLT panels. It seemed to sort of resonate. The sort of byline for the project was what would a city that was capable of bringing our energy consumption down by 75% look like, right? It seems like something that we can do. We can... You can read white papers and listen to, to speeches and you know, ring your wrists and all this stuff. What we can do is we can show consequences. What would it look like if we actually pulled this off? So um, it was a more general project of, I think, a broader attempt to describe a material culture that certainly in itself, even if it was wisely adopted, wouldn't solve the problem. But it would, if you would ask the question, what, what would a society that was capable of solving this problem, what would their urbanism look like?
1: Could you say something about or have you developed opinions about the work that's been going on in Detroit more broadly outside of your own project over the last decade? I think for our listeners that don't know this, of course, in the past decade or so, The economy of Detroit has been declared, uh, certainly in the media, as being back, quote unquote, you know, there's new money coming in, there's new forms of development. And also, with the leadership of a number of people, Detroit became a kind of a venue for urban and design discourse. Uh, Do you have thoughts about that work, or how would you characterize that uh, past decade in Detroit beyond your own work?
0: Detroit's an interesting case. I think there, I haven't been there since 2016, but I did go and see what was being done. And the sort of I got the Detroit is back vibe, saw a lot of the local work that was being done and the the smaller scale stuff, which I think is absolutely essential and laudable. But I think that one of the things that Detroit has going for it, uh, you know, although Rossi said the most important thing about the, the most permanent thing about the city is the plan, not the buildings, the plan and detroit has an enormous potential in just the fact of physical fact of its urban infrastructure and we were basically saying that you can benefit tremendously from this in terms of thinking through you know what if you think long enough into the future you it's not very hard to understand the growing value of urban density. Most of our projects advocate for various degrees of urban density just because the facts are there, that the average Manhattanite uses one quarter, uh, no, the average New Yorker in the five boroughs uses one quarter of the daily energy consumption than the average Houston person in Houston because of our enormous dispersion density has it works on a, a number of different levels uh, i could talk to the rest of the hour about that but uh, i think in terms of even a short-term view of the future as we need to re- reduce our energy consumption and emission uh, carbon emissions density is on the horizon and what detroit can offer that is significant which is the site for this density to occur uh, because it's essentially it's uh, lost so much building stock, but has not lost, I think, what its greatest potential is, which is the organ- structural organization to support, of become again, a major metropolitan center by virtue of the, the grid. A lot of that infrastructure would have to be rebuilt and replaced, but the fact that it's on the ground um, is an enormous asset. So what we were doing is saying, you know, uh, the aesthetic that is coming out of Detroit, I think there's some interesting things about it. There's a lot of sort of local power uh, bottom-up initiatives, which I think are laudable. I love the Tree project. I think there are other ways to look at it. And we were trying to uh, trying to capitalize on that. Corktown only has 25 uh, percent of its buildings. Left, if you would you would go there, you would say there's nothing there, and the point is that there is a lot there, and there's a way that Detroit can trade on that over time, and hopefully with the right incentives, uh, such as a carbon market, those values will become realized. Right when density, when a significant amount of urban density, enough to support a mass transit system, starts to fall into place as time goes on. I think Detroit can anticipate a change like this. And we kind of wanted to show them that possibility because it, you know, otherwise it may not occur to them, right?
1: Am I correct in reading the projects, the proposals as really offering a kind of cultural imaginary uh, that's based on, you know, potential realities, right? R- actual technical knowledge. And if so, Can you speak to the, what's the value of that cultural imaginary? Because I think that your work clearly is proposing this image of what a a resilient, adapted American city might be like, and there seem to be so few of those kinds of images uh, available in the public realm.
0: Yeah, I think that if we can't uh, make the case for urban culture or urbanism, architecture and urbanism as a cultural project, then we have no reason to exist. Simple as that. That is what we do. Uh, cultural projects run the. I mean, one of the difficulties we have with mounting cultural projects is that we live in an age of specialization, and if nothing, a cultural project is a generalist project where you pull from uh, any number of of disciplines, of which you always run the. The risk of uh, an incomplete understanding, but at the same time, the need to put these things together and describe the, the bigger picture is really our, you know, I think that's what we do and that's what we need to lay like, claim to. That so, the work we're doing on the bayous in Houston, their engineers have been trying for 50 years and they just made a bigger and bigger mess. I mean, i I shouldn't say it that way because it, it's been sincere and earnest efforts. Uh, they turned the, the bayous in the city into storm sewers and it hasn't worked. And then you have you know urban advocates on the side tinkering with the fabric of the city, um, oftentimes in complete ignorance of the watershed. Um, then you have the landscape architects who are maybe more, more generalist, but they're simply looking at the landscape. And there's a bigger picture there that puts together the management of water, the management of public space, the value of landscape as public space, and the imagination of public space in these bayous once they're, they are no longer a danger to the people who live near them, as being the engine of urban redevelopment, right? You can't do single projects anymore. We can't afford to, oh, we're gonna solve, here's a project to solve the water. Here's a project to solve the, the social problems, the housing issues, the gentrification, uh, the urban problems that exist. Here's another project for landscape improvement. You won't get that done. The only way you can get that done is to put them together into one project. And I think that's the sort of larger picture that we're after when we talk about urban culture. The wood thing that I mentioned to you is, you know, I described it as a material culture, right? That it's, you know, in that way, it's a sort of literally tying things together with the single material of wood. But I, I think it's, it is a, the importance of it, to me, comes from the fact that it's a generalist enterprise, that it is not a specialist enterprise and we're operating in a specialist milieu, which makes it hard for us to make that case. You know, where's your expertise? I need a hydrologist in here. Why are you here? But at the same time, it's clear, as clear as it can be that the division of knowledge into specialization has not so many specializations has not served us well. It's gotten us into the problems that we are facing now. So I think that's a sort of really broad uh, ambition for an architectural or an urban culture that relates to where we are at this moment. So in in that
1: regard, I guess one of the things I want to draw you out on is you you mentioned with respect to Corktown, and I take it to be a general condition that in each of these different regional settings, there are, you know, different environmental responses to climate change, different conditions arising, different species of trees, different energy models, different uh, you know latitudes and solar, you, know, you just keep adding difference. But I take it from your work that you're interested not just in the, the quality or the character of wood, like what would it mean to live in a wood, purely wood building or purely wooden city, which is interesting to speculate on that you've mentioned. Clearly, that's a different, you know, phenomenal response to the human body. But you've also suggested that simply co locating these different aspects of wood and its life cycle of carbon doesn't suggest a literal farming into, into buildings. But in fact, there's this other geography. So I, I want to know more from you about that. that is, so, on the one hand, to what extent is your project about bringing this um, metabolic cycle, the carbon cycle, and the timber life cycle, let's call it, into? Co location in the city, a little bit like kind of urban agricultural projects have been doing? Or to what extent are you still imagining uh, a much more remote, kind of distanced set of productions?
0: I think, well, the, the Corktown project 50% of the land is not built, right? So it's 50 50. The 50% is what is part of the, the urban forestry that's put on a cycle of cutting based on its, its ability to extract carbon. And stored in wood. And that I think that rhythm is we've been trying to figure out ways to draw that, how the rhythm of the trees growing and being cut and then regrowing is related to buildings being built. Let's say buildings last 50 years or 75 years and how those cycles integrate with each other. But I don't think that just you know, that's like the ingredients that you have on the counter, but it doesn't tell you how to put them together. We've been experimenting. I think there's a need for type, a bad need for type. I think we need to either decide we're going to, in design schools, that we're going to make a city or we're not. And uh, we can just produce individual buildings till the cows come home. But if you're really serious about making cities, you have to think of typical form. And how do we do that? At this point in time, I would say that we went through that experiment 20 years ago, attempting to revive traditional typologies with the tendenza and the Italian example with new urbanism in the United States. And, you know, look around. It hasn't worked. What do we... How do we... we, Where do we go next? So we've been speculating on different ways to generate typical form that is... Almost impossible to convey without on an audio-only format. That you have <laughs> this is totally ske- <laughs> Just for
1: our listeners, Albert is now sketching with his hands in midair. A section yeah, of a type that I want to know more about
0: an enormous frustration that we we sort of generate really simple table of variations based on a very simple logic that can be drawn from. The fact of the matter is that our programs, our modern programs, are too complex and and interrelated to fit in simple Platonic forms, as traditional typologies have always uh, proposed. That you need to be able to generate more complex forms in order to have a, a consistent output, but at the same time, accommodate that complexity. So we do, we have this, just some very simple logic, set out a table of variations is instead of a single type, we have a table of variations that allow you to combine types like towers, slabs, pavilions, to make these more complex forms, but also to keep them interrelated. And you have to have some kind of vocabulary even if I don't want to call it type or say that it is typology, you have to have some kind of self-similar vocabulary in order for buildings to relate to each other in a way that they add up to more than just individual buildings. And we just haven't, we sort of, well, it didn't work to revive the old one, so forget it, we'll just make different buildings on different lots and we'll, we'll rely on the genius of each architect to make such fantastic buildings that the fact that they don't relate to each other at all doesn't matter. Uh, That's not good enough. And I think that's what I mean when I say we have to decide, do we want to build the city or not? And if we do, we do have to think about how the, um, sorry again for the simplistic formulations, but how the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? If we don't get that greater value, which is what urbanism is, where two and two equal five or 10, right? Put two things together and you get more than just two things. We have to figure out how to make that happen. And we know we can't do it. At this point in time, we know we cannot do it by reviving traditional typologies. And we know we can't do it just by designing uh, single unrelated buildings side by side what? where does that leave us? So the, the other part of the project beyond the material aspects, the technical aspects, is how do you put together a vocabulary of form? How do you generate a vocabulary of forms that will give you an urban outcome that where, where one, one plus one will equal way more than two, right?
1: And in that calculus of urban outcome, are we also to imagine that it's it's to be populated by others? That is, you know, as as an urbanist, I take you to be proposing a notion of both what you've referred to as type or uh, reproducible formal outcomes and their rules of engagement, but which are not all controlled
0: by you. I take it, right? It's a system. It's not a. We don't work on single designs. We work on the means to generate design. So the table of variation will require selection and uh, composition. And at each stage of it, and then uh, I should probably say aggregation instead of composition, each stage of that, there is room for deviation and different outcomes. That master planning, the fact that you can compose something that's going to last forever and never change is anti-urban, right? That cities change, there's a dynamic, it has a metabolism. In the United States, I think the average age of our building keeps... At age of our lifespan of our building keeps shrinking and shrinking, there's some value in that, and that we turn over the urban fabric. But I think we have to get onto a, a system of aggregation, thinking through how to to instrumentalize a system of aggregation that will replace the notion of master planning wherein you have a single static composition that is finished, and then it's finished. It doesn't evolve in time. Oftentimes can't evolve in time, which is not what city, how cities have ever, if you look at cities, you know that cities have never worked that way. So it is to say that in some ways, we surrender some control in the outcome, but gain much more by a more generous system and the design of parts that can produce multiple outcomes, but all within a range that is far superior than any single composition can give you. If that makes any sense. It's, it's again, I'm, yeah, I'm, thinking, I'm drawing with my hands again. Um, <laughs> as
1: as an architect will do. Um, I think your notion of aggregation and the, the idea of a, internal logic, a kind of DNA of something that, you know, has a certain logic of uh, combination to it. I read that and a little bit your, you know, what you've said about a return to type in contrast to that other, you know, kind of dominant uh, American model of 20, 25 years ago, which was really built form guidelines, right? I mean, a much more kind of, you know, conservative description of formal parameters, which are, you, you use the term compositional, that that might be fair, in that regard, I'm, I'm intrigued by your notion of the decreasing life expectancy of buildings in the U.S. city. And to that, uh, we could also add what we've already said about the, the models of financialization and capitalization of those buildings being built by architects for single purposes and therefore not having the kind of durability of type. And so in your schema of a kind of n- a new, new typology, what replaces that notion of persistent cultural or spatial pattern over time? in the Rossian sense. Because as I read the projects, I mean, and we'll get to a conversation about climate that I wanna get to, but on that question of type, a part of what I think is so striking about uh, your work in the recent couple of years has been that it's clearly urban, the rules of combination are made evident, but you're producing new things, right? This is clearly a modern city. It's clearly a progressive image of a, a way to live in the future. And so how do you reconcile that with this notion of type as a kind of cultural memory or kind of cultural continuity?
0: I think in what you're, one of the things you're asking about is the permanence of type and how type really comes from the fact that it succeeds over many generations of use and often is transformed in many generations of use. And that's problematic in a, a building economy where a commercial building in Houston is amortized over 25 years and then it's done. And usually it's torn down. Uh, and even residential structures, you know, sometimes... In my neighborhood, they're tearing down houses from the 80s, which is insane. However, there is an advantage. We can, I think we can take advantage of this situation. We have to change really quickly. We have to, uh, we have to get our act together in a, in a very short amount of time, you know, one, two decades. Even that is getting to be problematic. We can use the fast turnover of buildings, recognizing that we are constantly rebuilding and we're rebuilding uh, quicker and more to actually intervene in that process and generate alternatives for when a given area and a, a series of buildings are at the end of their useful lifespan, they can then be immediately replaced by something that makes sense given the parameters, the environmental problems that we're facing today. And so we can exploit the fact that the buildings have a much faster turnover by way of reforming the city. Every 50 years, we build, if you average it out, we build a new city. So you go out on the street, you do a thought experiment, you go out on the street, get into a time machine, Come out 50 years later, everything you're looking at has been built in the last 50 years. And you look around from your perspective of 50 years hence and you ask, how did we do? Did we build what we needed to build? Right. And for, especially for us in architecture schools, did we even imagine what we needed to build in these last 50 years? Um, So I, I think we can, you know, moving forward, we could have a pretty persuasive argument for building more permanently than we do today. But in the short term, I think we can take advantage of the fact that our accelerated rate of urban production can uh, actually help us solve some of these, our short-term problems.
1: That's fascinating. I mean, the notion that Taking what's been perceived, I think, and rightly so, as among the, the most uh, deleterious aspects of our culture, the idea that we abandoned buildings in place, we, you know, are our, our, the mobility of capital. Uh, enables a condition in which, you know, the the examples I think of include that major corporations uh, in the US, in addition to not paying any taxes, also of course, are abandoning buildings and simply turning them off like an annual light bill as opposed to thinking of them on their capital sheets or what had been built as kind of public uh, monuments, either, you know, imagine, you know, tall buildings or sports stadia are now the vending of rights, naming rights, irrespective of that form. And by a focus on the scale of carbon, And the notion of getting ahead of or inverting that carbon cycle through wood allows one to actually imagine that acceleration of obsolescence as a potential advantage. I mean, that's fascinating. I'm interested in the scalar implication of that also, because the, the carbon economy and the notion of the wood and its relationship to the, that kind of metabolic process has this also very interesting kind of scalar condition. I know that your work has been uh, chronicled in a volume called Wood Urbanism, but my colleagues here at the Harvard GSD, uh, Daniel Bañez and Kiel Moe and Jane Hutton have co-edited recently on looking at that scalar juxtaposition between the scale of carbon and its molecular processes in the wood cycle, and also looking at its urban uh, potential. I'm fascinated, uh, Albert, by your characterization of different regional expressions of anthropogenic climate change and fires in California, flooding in the bayous of Houston, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, In that context, it's fascinating to me that there could be a kind of a regional expression, or let me ask it as a question. Can you imagine that those different conditions with respect to the thermodynamics of climate change, different tree species, different climatological effects, and different geographic and hydrological conditions, could that produce a kind of, a kind of new regionalism? Is that, is that too too far?
0: I think the regionalism, you know, Frampton's version of it was compelling at the time that he articulated it. I'm not sure that it's... it's doesn't need revising at this point, certainly one of those revisions would have to do with the the variables that that you mentioned and the fact that our climate problems and their consequences uh, are requiring us to pay much more attention to local conditions, meaning weather patterns, geology, Biosphere, any, as it changes from the Mediterranean to the swamp to the uh, hardwood forest of the north, would give you a very different kind of expression. And I think that would be, I think it's necessary, and I think it's be a good outcome of it. On the other hand, I do think that in terms of scale, this is a big, big problem, and it requires us to transcend the fetishization of local spaces, local economies, and local conditions in order to address, we need a nationwide, and we're getting a nationwide industry of cross-laminated timber. Right? That's not, I mean it'll grow up in various regions, but I think it's fairly, from what I'm seeing, it's they're popping up everywhere. I think we need to think this through on a national scale. Uh, I suppose we could launch a little bit into the Green New Deal and thinking about, you know, the regionalism, I don't think the regionalism is going to, you know, localism is not going to solve this problem mostly because the problems, they have enormous local consequences, but the source of the problems are global right? It's uh, the atmosphere. In a way, we have to respond in scale, and I, which I think is, is to say the regional approaches are good and there can be valuable outcomes. But I think the response has to be at a bigger scale than one regional economy or another regional economy, because that's a fiction anyway. There's no such thing as a regional economy. The economies are globalized. I think that we have shied away from that and have been suspicion, suspicious of that, especially you know, on the left, where we tend to focus on the local, on the, the you know, what we can touch and put our hands on, and are mistrustful of the larger scaled uh, programs, technology, ideas. We're overly suspicious of them in a way that has paralyzed our responses. And I think regionalism is an example of that, that we need to be much more aggressive. We need to recognize that our problems are big and our solutions have to be big. I know that phrase doesn't go down easily, but I I think it has to. And that's where I think uh, certain drives like a Green New Deal, like, a sort of mobilization that would be required to tackle these problems, make these changes is going to happen at a large scale of a, a super regional scale. So I, it was, it's great if they have the regional effects and they would, because we have to respond to those. But I think our, our response has to be much bigger than a regional response. You know, these guys got it right. These guys don't, or these guys you know, they live in a desert there, forget them. I'm really sort of frustrated in our inability to think big. I know why we don't think big. I know why we don't and have in our discourse the New Town Movement, right? Which drove urban discourse for so long and all of a sudden, poof, it just disappeared. To Actually, to, to sort of take on as an intellectual problem what is a city? How can it be built? And can it? You know, what scale are we talking about? And I think we need to think that way. We're being forced to think that way because of the problems that we face. Is that we can't just think of single buildings or single blocks or single regions. Uh, I think we have to draw a bigger picture. So the which I think the Green New Deal is proposing and. I think it's surprising that when it was first introduced, it was almost hilariously naive to think that that could be done. It was criticized by climate scientists. I mean, it hasn't been that long, but in since that time, it's all of a sudden. I think it has to do with you know Portland, poor Portland. <laughs> they their their streets are on fire. uh their the social protest. They're Landscape is on fire. They're fighting a pandemic. The sort of uh, what we're looking at now is really making, making it possible to rethink things in fundamental ways that wasn't even, I don't think it was available to us six months ago, but now is. And I think somewhere in the last six or eight months, it's sort of been surprising to see the Green New Deal take, get traction, And think about that scale again.
1: You mentioned Kenneth Frampton's early uh, 1980s precept of critical regionalism, which uh, in essence was an argument about continuity with the modern project, uh, avoiding the style wars of postmodernism, but through uh, local or regional cultural frameworks, primarily also as a, a form of resistance is the term that Frampton used against increasingly global capital flows. And so, in that sense, uh, you're advocating for a uh, Green New Deal and the role of the work of architects and urbanists in that. Of course, you're reminding our audience of the, the role that architects and urbanists and landscape architects played in the original New Deal. That New Deal coming out of the collapse of the Great Depression in the 1930s put quite a lot of people to work, uh, building quite a lot of infrastructure. Uh, across American cities and across the American landscape for that matter, and in part was based on the scale of the challenge. And you're suggesting that going forward in a Green, green New Deal, you see the enormity of the climate challenge that we face as catalyzing something comparable. So. Say something more about like, wh- how, how might your research feed into that? So g- given the, the the potential for, you know, an, a Green New Deal, which expects new infrastructures, new forms of being put to work with respect to kind of rebuilding our infrastructure, what role might an urbanist play in that kind of a project going forward?
0: Well, I think that we have, I think one of the, one of the things that uh, was skeptical about the Green New Deal was the fact that, they called it the New Deal, and I sometimes I'm, it seemed like a, a kind of marketing ploy in you know, a way to self-promotion by those who were uh, proposing it. But in hindsight, it begs for us, it begs the question of what a welfare, a 21st century welfare state would look, what would it look like? And we can actually rely on, we have some history to look back on and say, we know what the 20th century welfare state looked like. That was quite an experiment and had its ups and many downs. Architects certainly played a significant role in that uh, particular historical period, really changed the way architecture was thought of. And I, I think we can look at that as a way to speculate on what a 21st century welfare state might, what it might look like. It's not many people, not many architects, but many other people involved in climate are talking about what is gonna be required to keep surface warming below two degrees. And oftentimes you hear and read that it's uh, equivalent to the mobilization for the second world war, right? It's at that scale. It's going to take to make the changes we need to make to keep the climate within some workable range that we can still continue to exist, survive in, in some form of fashion that we survive, to, that we live today. I think that modern urbanism in that period it went through uh, three generations of experimentation, right? The original generation, Corbusier, right? Uh, Hilversheimer and Meese, and the urban projects. The second generation is Team 10. Maybe the third generation was the megastructure. It was not like, what's the next experiment? It's like, stop experimenting, flee the lab. No longer are we going to imagine what urbanism should be. We did, we got a horrible bloody nose from Cabrini-Green and um, the general project of urban redevelopment that you know, led to Pruitt-Igoe and caused us to abandon the urban project. And I think that the problem was that we, I think we've learned a lot in, by the work that was done by the first new deal and by the welfare state actions We learned a lot about, we know the story of Cabrini-Green, it's a fascinating story. Uh, And I think that so much has changed in that period since then, since we just abandoned urban speculation, that it's exhilarating to think of where we might be now. In other words, we have sort of not thought of urbanism as a complete project since really the early 70s, we stopped experimenting. We stopped speculating. What is a new town? What is, how do we live? At what scale do we live? Uh, What kind of environmental footprint does it have? And I think that is, that body of, for me, that body of experimentation is extremely attractive at this point in time, made all the more attractive by the sort of turn of events that has brought about the environmental problems and has brought about these proposals, again, uh, proposing uh, something like a, a New Deal scale of response that architects would have a significant role in participating in if we step up to it, right? I think it's useful for us to realize that architecture has been different things at different times. And oftentimes, we, we just throw out whatever the last one was and focus on what we've been doing. For, you know, our attention span is ridiculously short. Uh, the shelf life of an idea in architecture is pretty limited. If we just expand back a couple of generations, we can see a much more active role um, for architecture and urbanism and we can see the need for that at this particular point in time. And actually, the suggestion that even that I could even sort of sit here and speculate on what a 21st century welfare state would look like is an amazing turn of events, right? Um, I, you know, we're not gonna go back to Keynesian economics, But we're, you know, the sort of veil has been torn off neoliberalism and what it can and cannot do. And I I think we're headed to a different dispensation. And there's no reason to think that architecture and urbanism wouldn't have a big role to play uh, in that dispensation. It's been enough time that we can understand the failures that we made in thinking at big scale, and that doesn't mean that we can never think at big scale again, and that thinking at a big scale isn't necessary. It is necessary, because there's no one else to do it, right? Who, or what are you going to give the, you know, any, any large-scale problems? Who's going to design, are we going to hand it over to engineers, right? We've sort of done that, handed over cities to traffic engineers and civil engineers. I don't think we're going to get out of our problems without design. And we're the only ones around, right? We're the only ones that designed the built environment. We've just been working at a really, really too small a scale. And we need to get over the problems that we had, understand that we, with that scale, understand the failures for what they were, uh, and understand that experimentation is required again.
1: I know that you're working on a new book. is a collection of essays.
0: Yeah. I'm reworking them, so they're, some of them are, I think the oldest one is 10 or 12 years old. But yeah, and trying to tie them together a bit, yeah. It's called Inverse Utopia, which is based on a statement made, I don't know when I, I dug it up, um, a while back, from a guy who's Gustav Anders, who was in Hannah Rent circle. And if I can say it right, his sentiment was that utopians cannot imagine, cannot make the things that they imagine. We cannot imagine the things that we can actually make. In other words, our capabilities are so much greater than our imagination. Who would have imagined that we could completely change the chemical composition of the atmosphere? What we are able to do, we are unable to fully imagine. The point being is that we have collectively uh, affected the world at such a scale, we can't almost can't get our head around climate change. This comes; it partially comes from uh, my friend Timothy Morton's notion of a hyperobject. We, we simply can't get our head around our own production. We can't imagine the things that we can otherwise make. Anders was talking about uh, atomic energy and nuclear vision. I'm sort, of, sort of what we were talking about before is that we have to understand the, the power of the things that we're actually able to do in order to solve the problems that we've made we need to uh, recognize that, that uh, this is a, again a pitch for opening our imaginations back up in scale to respond out of necessity, to respond to the scale of the problems that, that we have created. And that's the origin, that's where the sentiment comes from that we're inverse utopians, that we really can't, we, we don't imagine our own abilities sufficiently to solve our problems as a pitch to think about urbanism at scale again. So a lot of the, the, the essays in the book are pushed and weighted towards that broader imagination that I think has always, you know, it's certainly been part of the, the modern urban project uh, for the last hundred years, beginning a hundred years ago that we more recently lost and that we need to return to. We have to allow our imaginations to think at scale again. And the urban project is the way to do it.
1: Well, we'll look forward to Inverse Utopia. Albert Pope, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks. I enjoyed talking to you. been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit www.dac.gsd.harvard.edu